Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast, conversations to engage, connect and inspire missional people. Welcome back everybody to the Venture 12 podcast season 2 episode number 4. Me today, Chris, joined by Emma. Hello. Are you alright? I'm good. I am quite happy to be working today. Yeah, that's unusual isn't it? (laughs) Well, well, I do work a lot but I've had... uh, yeah, some time off with sick boys for the last two weeks, on and off. So it's felt like a yeah. bit of a slog. Just yeah. uh, really strategically timed sicknesses as well, isn't it? Oh, They're getting sick yeah, one after the other, rather than at the same the time. Chicken pox, then flu, then chicken pox again. Yeah, it's not something I've encountered before. So that's uh, yeah. yeah, really tested my yeah. patience. Actually, you and me were talking yesterday. I think we were actually talking about this. Um, uh, podcast via text and I asked if you'd prepared something for it yet and you, your reply was really funny it said uh, not right now I'm just practicing my meerkat impression <laughs> which one of your boys has asked you to do yeah my youngest boy is really into all kinds of animals but yeah. at the minute he's focusing in on meerkats yeah. well do you want to give the <laughs> listeners a <laughs> preview not. of I'd a meerkat sound but it, oh. yeah I mean the interesting thing about me <laughs> meerkats yeah go on give us a meerkat but this is a new feature on the podcast by the way yeah it's uh they've got they've actually developed language for how far away um a predator is so they've got one sound for like 200 meters no away way. and they've got another sound for like 100 meters really? and then the third sound for 50 meters let's say and then it's imminent danger then they basically start to bark Wow. So it's <laughs> That's like um you know, like the national security threat levels when you move from red to when it's green, amber I and mean, red. Nobody knew they but... developed that on the back of meerkats. Well, there we Psychology. go. Psychology. <laughs> no, don't let anybody tell you that the Venture Twelve podcast is not educational. I know. <laughs> wow. And uh, that is day. actually the topic of today's <laughs> <laughs> show. Thankfully not. Yeah, no. Thankfully not. Well uh, that's a good segue anyway. Yeah. Um Yeah, we've got an interesting uh, topic though, and uh, we're going to be bringing you Dr. Fran Porter today uh, in our podcast, who's written a book called Women and Men After Christendom, The Disordering of Gender Relationships. Mm. Um, Yeah, so just that title should entice you to continue listening. It's a really interesting topic and very engaging yeah. Um, lady to listen to as well. And I mean, what? Why are we? Why are we covering this? Why are we going into this topic? Um, well, it's kind of become a bit of a series um, for a few months. We wanted to look at female apostolic leadership, female leadership in the Bible, early church, and we're just trying to cover different angles, really, as we're mm. exploring this topic ourselves. I think it relates to so many other things. Uh, that we're talking about on the podcast, but that we're also thinking about as as a missional community and as leaders. But we'll not spoil the podcast for you. We'll mm. we'll do some reflections after. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we hope you really enjoy. Yeah, and just to say, when I, I I listened to it yesterday evening for the first time, and I just had to stop halfway through and take a moment just to like reflect on what I'd heard, and I just texted you and I just said, "This is." simply brilliant which I don't think is a phrase I've ever used in my life before but 
very old. This is quite fantastic. Quite brilliant. Yeah, but it yes. but it really really is. There's so much, um, not just wisdom, but like knowledge and history and information that it's just essential that the body of Christ know. I know. And I can't believe, to be honest, that we didn't know. (laughs) Or maybe it's just me that didn't know. But I think it's, uh, yeah, she's got some really important things to say, I think, too. She has. For all of us. Well, look, before we get into it, uh, we've been doing a little challenge, finding that listener to find out uh, who's listening from around the world. Um, Not just to give us feedback, but to hear about you, where you are, what your context is, what's your role in serving the church or uh, yeah what's your mission all those kind of things uh, today we're gonna keep it relatively simple we think we're still quite at the, at the beginning of this like uh, um, little challenge that we're doing so we'll keep it quite simple and we're gonna go closer to home today with Sweden so um, who have we got no no we haven't got anyone this is the call out to the Swedes oh. <laughs> we haven't got anyone we need That's you Sweden good. yeah this is your time to step up uh, and get in contact with us. Just let us know who you are, uh, what you're doing, and we'll, we'll uh, read your message or give you a shout out on the next one. Um, yeah, so there we go. Super. Yeah, let's get into it. Enjoy and stick around afterwards where we'll be uh, sharing some of our own reflections and uh, posting some questions for you guys to talk about and uh, reflect over in your groups and teams. See you soon. Good morning, Fran Porter. I'm very pleased to have you here with me on the Venture 12 podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Very good to be with you. Thank you so much for for coming on. And we've got such an interesting topic to to talk about together today. But it would be really good for our listeners, I think, if you would just like to say something about yourself, who you are, what's your experience and whereabouts are you in the world today? All right. Well, I'm Fran Porter. I live in the UK, um, currently in the middle of England in a region called the West Midlands. And I'm an academic. I have a background in research and theological education, although a lot of my work has been with the church's sector. My own research has often been interdisciplinary, so that's bringing together theological questions and reflections with social and political questions and disciplines. Um, For example, exploring faith in the context of gender power relations, social diversity and sectarian conflict. But all of this research I find helps me and informs my work with doctoral in theology and I'm currently a senior research fellow with IBTS which is an international Baptist research and learning community that's based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. So very interesting world that you are uh, engaging with with there and uh, you have written a book called Women and Men After Christendom The Disordering of Gender Relationships Can you tell us why did you write this book? Well, I have had a long interest in gender. And actually, at this point, it may be helpful uh, to explain what I mean by gender, uh, because it's a term that's used in, in different ways these days. I'm not primarily talking about gender as identity an innate sense of identity or internal characteristic, but about gender as a social system. So that's a socially imposed division of two sexes with social status and organisation based around norms and expectations associated with each. So when I talk about gender power relations, that is about the differences in social and political power between women and men that tend to disadvantage women. So another way of looking at it is that gender as a social system is a particular way of telling the gender story that has shaped and still shaped all our lives. And I've been exploring this throughout my adult life since studying theology as an undergraduate. When I first became aware of theological debates, there were about who women were, what they could do, how they should behave in church and society. 
in a way that was really quite different from the experience of men and indeed was shaped very much in contrast to and defined by men and so-called male roles. And the more I explored this, the more I realised what was happening to women in the church, that it was not a separate thing to how women were viewed in the rest of society, that these two things were really very much connected. And actually, I went back to university, I did my master's degree in women's studies, and then I was able to combine theology and feminist theory in my doctoral studies. That's kind of where I come from in that route. But gender analysis and critique has been a regular feature of my work since then. So this particular book arose out of a UK book project series on After Christendom. It's edited by Stuart Murray Williams and, and listeners may well have come across other um, titles in the series that there are more than 10 of them, at least at this, at this point, exploring different aspects of faith and life through the lens of post-Christendom. Um, I should say the theological home for these books is Anabaptism. The Anabaptists were part of the 16th century re renewal movement of, of um, Europe's radical reformation. They were named rebaptizers by the established churches because of their practice of baptizing believers and not of infants. And they did this because they saw Christian profession as an act of choice and not a default of birth. Um, they believed in, they practiced a more congregational style of being church and they rejected the existing ecclesial authorities. And many of their followers were from the poorer classes and they were a persecuted group by both Catholic and reformed st state churches. Um, and I tell you that because these origins mean that Anabaptism uh, and Anabaptist theology has a questioning stance towards power and how it is used. And while a number of the other after Christendom books who look at all sorts of other subjects mention gender in passing, the idea of having a book dedicated to looking at gender power relations in particular arose. And some of us talked about it and I was happy to write it. So that's how it came about. Yeah, that's a really helpful um, background just to understand um, some of where you're coming from and, and how this how this topic fits in, in into the wider um, context. So if we if we go back to the word Christendom, perhaps a little bit, um, sometimes we use it interchangeably with Christianity and we don't always understand fully what, what this term means. But how would you describe what Christendom is and um, yeah, how, um, how it sort of impacted or had implications for our Christian faith? Well, historically speaking, Christendom is the name we give for the period beginning in the fourth century when the Roman Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity as the religion of his empire. And what that did was it ended its status as an illicit superstition which it had been up to that point. And within two centuries, um, Christianity had developed not uh, from being, not simply being a, a legitimate religion in the empire, but the only lawful one, membership of which was compulsory for near enough everyone in the empire. And this historical era continues throughout the Middle Ages and vestiges of it right through into the late 20th century. And it involved a political arrangement in which church and state provided mutual, if often not always easy, support and legitimation of each other. You know, um, so it resulted in a civilization that was decisively shaped by the story, the language symbols and the rhythms of Christianity. And sometimes we talk about a Christendom mindset, which is a way of thinking about God's activity in the world that reflects this kind of dominance, even if the historical era and geographical realm of Christendom no longer exists. Um, why does it matter? Well, our history matters because it has shaped us. Um, and being aware of that helps us re-examine some of our assumptions and practices. And crucially, a post-Christendom, which is not the same as a post-Christian, all right, you're, you're right to make that distinction, but a post-Christendom mindset questions power. And that, I suppose, is where it links in with gender um, very naturally, because as far as gender relationships are concerned, Christendom had a natural partner in patriarchy, which, of course, predates not only Christendom, but the Christian church. 
Um, and here I should perhaps stop and, and say something about what patriarchy is. Again, it, it may be a familiar term, but people aren't quite sure how it's used. I'm using it to refer to um, where the rule of the father is the basic principle of social organization of family and society. So we're talking about a hierarchy of males over females, but also fathers over sons and masters over slaves. And it's a, a way of viewing the world that has shaped both social systems, how we organize ourselves, but also um, symbols, cultural symbols about the nature of reality. That's our philosophy and it's our theology. So it's not only about power of men over women, but it's also a system of power which shapes society at all levels. Um, so it doesn't exclude the attitudes and actions of individuals, but nor is it limited to that. And I think this is why patriarchy is a really useful concept, because it doesn't apportion blame to men because they are men, but rather it names a system that variously rewards men within it and women who cooperate or survive in it. And it's a system that's hostile to any who work to change it. And, and clearly, um, hopefully in those two sketchy outlines, you can see the links between patriarchal and Christendom models of social organization. And of course, how it has worked um, in the, in, in, during Christendom ha can be complicated because depending on whether you were rich or poor, free or slave, male or female, and the combination of those, your fortunes would vary. Uh, so some women would be in a much better position than some men. Uh, within that system. But generally speaking, the ethos of empire is sustained by women's subordination, which is the marrying together of Christendom and patriarchy. So can you tell us a little bit, Fran, about what the situation for men and women were like before Christendom, before this period of Constantine and, and everything that that brought with it? Well, before Christendom actually covers quite a long time because you've got about 300 years from when Jesus had begun proclaiming the good news. And during this uh, period, these 300 years, there'd been growth of both the Roman Empire and the Christian Church and much conflict between the two. And even um, patterns of ministry check within the church change during this period. Um, so by the end of the third century, uh, if we were sort of working backwards, we would find that although it wasn't without challenge, we have the pattern of a threefold ministry of deacon, priest and bishop fairly settled as the assumed norm for the universal church. And that's perhaps what we're most familiar with. And, and this leadership was predominantly male. But that situation contrasts with the earlier period of this, this 300 years when there was a more fluid organisation uh, among churches where they used the terms elders and overseers more loosely along with apostles, prophets and teachers and in which church leadership and role was based on charismata, um, gifting from God that was bestowed on both women and men. So let me give you some examples to run through some of these um, labels. We can start with Acts 2, which shows us that women, both free and slave, received the spirit along with free and slave men when it was poured out at Pentecost. And these spirit-filled women were active in their discipleship and in the community life of believers uh, to the extent that it resulted in persecution by Saul of Tarsus, you know, who becomes Paul. But in Acts 8, he's described as ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women to prison. There must have been a reason for him taking the women along with the men. But our evidence isn't only from the New Testament, it's also from early church history sources. So for Oregon, who was a scholar at the beginning of the third century, the Samaritan woman at the well was an apostle and an evangelist, as were, according to another third century church father, Elitus of Rome, uh, the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection, which gives an indication of the missionary component of early Christian understanding of apostleship. We have Junia, who's called an apostle by Paul in Romans 16. She was someone who was a believer before he was and who had been imprisoned with him. 
and commentaries written on Romans from uh, John Chrysostom in the fourth century to Peter Abelard in the twelfth, all accept that Junia was a woman, an apostle who was a woman. And it wasn't until the next century that any commentator claimed that this name was masculine and referred to a man as an attempt to sort of remove this evidence from history. But we know from Corinthians that women participated in the common practice of prophecy in the early church. So we have Anna, Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have the four daughters of Philip from Caesarea. They're women who are named or characterized as prophets um, in the New Testament. Irenaeus of Lyons at the end of the second century talks about women as prophets. Oregon, again, explicitly states that women could share in the grace of prophecy because this gift is not given according to the difference of the sexes, he says, but according to the purity of the mind. Eusebius, who was a scholar, historian and bishop, he acknowledged a second century uh, prophet, um, Amir of Philadelphia. So we have lots of these examples uh, when we take deacons, um, it took about two centuries for the, the office of deacons to formalise. But during those first two centuries, both women and men served as deacons in the early church. The best woman deacon we know, of course, is Phoebe, uh, Paul's co-worker, sister, deacon and benefactor of the church, she is called. Oregon calls her pious Phoebe and says she is a specific example of the Pauline apostolic authority for women deacons he talks about in 1 Timothy 3. And she also appears as a model for women candidates to the diaconate, along with Stephen as a model for the male candidates in a 10th century manuscript, which has ordination rituals for deacons. Um, and while Phoebe was most likely a woman of some prosperity and social standing, we have two deaconesses imprisoned by Pliny the Younger in, in early second century, who we know were both slave women. So again, a broad spectrum of people uh, who served as uh, uh, women deacons. Uh, going to the third century onwards, when church offices became established, this more settled pattern, we still know that women deacons ministered to women in church gatherings, they instructed new women believers, they performed a large part of baptismal rituals for women, and in addition, women deacons ministered to women in households, they visited those who were sick, they took them communion, they laid their hands on them in prayer. Um, and that's a different um, uh, group to the order of widows. Um, and these were not uh, women who needed financial support from the church because of material need. These were ecclesial widows, uh, an order of church widows, who were known for good works. They taught women. They actually were involved in testing deaconesses. Uh, they prayed, they cared for the sick, they anointed women at baptism. And sometimes they could be paid for their work. Christian teaching and instruction among the first Christians. Um, this was carried out by apostles, prophets, presbyters, widows, bishops, deacons, and by those simply described as teachers. So following in the footsteps of Priscilla, um, we know her as someone who instructed this very well-educated Alexandrian uh, Jewish Christian Apollos. Um, but following her footsteps, we have someone called Theodora, Marcella, Melanie the Younger, these are some of the names we know. So even into the fourth century, Jerome praised Marcella. She was a Roman woman of wealth and status, uh, and he praised her for her theological competence and the astute way she taught men, including some male clerics who came to her for advice. And he praised her that, that, that she did this in such a way as to make them uh, comfortable with learning from a woman. Um, and he dedicated his commentaries on Daniel and Galatians to Marcella. So that's a sort of a really quick um, overview. But women in these uh, first generation of Christians were benefactors and patrons of believing communities. They participated in worship, they prayed, they prophesied, they spread the good news, they instructed new believers. They were involved in church rituals, they were among the officers of the increasingly settled ecclesial institution. But they were also imprisoned, persecuted and martyred. So they were very active in spreading the gospel and in the life of the early church. So given that you said earlier that patriarchy was the dominant pattern of relationship 
gaps between women and men at the time. What was it then about the gospel that led to these early church practices? Yes, it's it's hard to kind of uh, understand what I've said about patriarchy with what I've just described. Um, But let me take you through how I see the story of this, because um, patriarchy was built into the social framework of the Greco-Roman world, where it was a system where the, the senior male who was called the patia familius, was the legal head of a household. Um, and this household was made up um, not only of people, which is both slave and free, um, but also property, land and animals. And, and this household ordering was integrated um, with male kinship bloodlines down through the generations. So working together, these two systems made sure that all the power and the property was passed down from generation to generation to each male descendant. So this is, this is the world of the Gospels. Uh, and this is the background to so much of Jesus's parables. I mean, if you just think about it, there are stories involving masters, sons, slaves, hired workers in settings of household economies and kin relationships. And one of the best known ones is the story of the prodigal son, which is based on the just outrageous behaviour of a son who wants his inheritance before his father has died, making the father's embrace of his wayward son even more remarkable and possibly giving us a little bit more sympathy with a brother who remains behind and does us what is expected. Uh, He doesn't always get much sympathy from from us, does he? Uh, But he was doing what was expected, and it was the prodigal son that was behaving in just this outrageous manner. But bound up in this framework was loyalty to household gods, for religion was integral to the welfare of both the kin households and also the state, with the male-led family being a pattern for the idea of the state. So you have a properly ordered household reflected in a properly ordered state. And these arrangements were said to please the gods and therefore were believed to be the path to prosperity for the nation. It's the way the world and the universe worked. And into this way of understanding and ordering the world comes Jesus, announcing good news of the kingdom of God, which just challenges everything. Because Jesus talked about the good news of liberation in people's lives, whereby they're brought into a new community. So this was a kin network, but it didn't depend on bloodlines. It didn't depend on national identity or on male-dominated patterns. Rather, Jesus identifies his followers as his family members in a new community that's for everyone, regardless of their nationality. It's for women as well as men. It's for children as well as adults. It includes those of low status without any political rights on the same basis and even on occasions instead of those with wealth and status. And Jesus is very that the disciples were not to be like those around them who lorded it over others and ruled like tyrants, but to be servants of each other. And everybody's behaviour is to be transformed. So you have love of God linked to love of self, to love of neighbour and even to love of enemies. And it's in this new community of belonging and behaving that I think the significance of the metaphor of God as father belongs. It's very clear in the Gospels, Jesus presents God as father, his own and of those who follow him. And it's a relationship to this father that makes you a member of God's family. It's not dependent on biological lineage or existing religious loyalties, whether they are Jewish or pagan. It's the fact that you belong to the father. And of course, hopefully it's clear that the idea of belonging based on relationship to the father of the family would have made sense at the time. The father, after all, was the one who gave legitimacy and status and belonging. But as with all the stories and images Jesus uses, he gives them a twist from the way they are understood in the surrounding society. So in contrast to the power of the legal head of the household, with God as father, there are no slaves. People are not owned like property. There are only brothers and sisters and friends, all terms that are used of disciples. And There's no competition for status and power, for self-promotion, or just jostling for positions of greatness. Jesus says, no, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. 
and nor is the accumulation of wealth a priority. In fact, it's a hindrance and existing family loyalties are superseded. So when the man comes to Jesus and said, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you go, but let me go and bury my father first and then I will follow you. Uh, and Jesus says, no, uh, you follow me first, which seems to us rather a strange thing and unempathetic. But if what he's really saying is, Lord, let let please wait till my father has died and I have got to the head of my household and I have assured my place of wealth and power within my kin household network, and then you can have my allegiance. And Jesus says, no, that, that's that's not the order to do it in. Um, that's not the priorities for me, and that's not how you belong to me. So, so this picture uh, of God as father is one that undermines challenges and opposes the hierarchy of patriarchal families and domineering systems of whatever kind. And, and so you can see, I hope, how God's new family framework was highly subversive of the existing social and indeed political order. So in the place of hierarchy and stasis, um, patronage and favoritism, privilege, advantage, in Jesus's new community, we belong to God and to each other on the same basis. So it questioned the usual conventions of marriage, kin and household that structured uh, women and men's lives, particularly in the light of the fact that the first Christians expected Jesus to return, you know, in their lifetimes. And the image of God as father was a direct challenge, I think, to the place of all patriarchs, whether they were in kin networks, households or heads of states. And while today a lot is made of it as a, as a male as opposed to female metaphor, I think that is, a, is not what the New Testament is saying. I think its significance is as a picture that confounds systems of domination. So what it does is it frees up women to be disciples of Jesus alongside men who preach and teach, prophesy and serve on the basis of their gifting and their character. And this was part of a new order. This was how it was possible. So that's obviously very exciting um, for all of us and really exciting for, for the women uh, and the men at the time. But what happens then to these relationships through Christendom and the subsequent developments in and through the church and society? How do they change? Well, as I've already um, mentioned, I think st things started to change before Constantine's conversion. Um, so as I was saying, the first Christian communities who expected the imminent return of Jesus. They then had to adjust and continue to negotiate their relationship with the Roman Empire as life went on. And we have, particularly in the New Testament letters, glimpses of the kind of debates that were going on in the early church about the way to behave and to survive as an illegal and sometimes persecuted religion. This was a tough call. Um, and as local churches established and were clearly remaining in place, alongside that kind of thinking, itinerant ministries gave way to more settled ministries, um, you know, as, as people began to organise themselves in one place. And, and, and you got into disputes about authority and, and who, spoke, um, who spoke the gospel and, and so on. And so there was a motivation for... Um, concern to safeguard the unity of the church and, and the integrity of it um, that led to um, some disputes and debates. But by the end of the third century, you have this threefold hierarchical system of bishop, priest and deacon established. Um, so, so there was already embedded by this time a split between clergy and laity, uh, resting authority of leadership, belief and practice in a, a separated, near exclusive male group of believers. It wasn't completely so because there were there were still women deacons and some women active. Um, and, but in doing that, it, it kind of reinforced a belief in a divine ordering of patriarchal gender relationships. And while there were more radical groups um, who, who challenged this, um, they weren't considered normal. They weren't considered normative of Christian experience. And so this was the situation when Constantine adopted Christianity into his empire. But um, what happened in Christendom, in the book, I, I focus on three dynamics that I think happened under Christendom that um, take things further and that particularly impact the relationship between women and men. Obviously, there were 
all sorts of other implications for the church. But in terms of gender relations, the first is more about this division between clergy and laity. In particular, the separation of a male celibate clergy. Um, sexual abstinence was evident in the early church, but it was part of their eschatological hope. Okay, that means uh, what they believed, the new order that was coming in. So things of this world are passing away. So why marry? build households and accumulate and keep wealth for future generations. What, what was the point? It was all passing away for a new order. Um, and, and actually, you can think of some of what Paul says in Corinthians about whether it's better to marry or not to marry um, in this light as part of this discussion about what was going on. Um, but while this was part of eschatological hope for the early church, during the Christendom years, the idea of clerical celibacy becomes linked to something else. It becomes linked to occultic purity. Now, clearly, celibacy was very difficult to enforce. And even when priests were forbidden to marry and it was made illegal, in practice, many priests uh, lived with women as concubines instead. But what is significant here is that the notion of a male celibate priesthood was built on negative views about women. So while um, male, male clerics, male priests, um, increasingly um, were required to be celibate, celibacy in itself was not enough for women to enter into these roles, female embodiment was itself a disqualification from clerical office. All right, so it's nothing that they could do by their behavior. It was just that femaleness was considered incompatible. So this not only removes women in practice and in institutional memory from various forms of leadership and liturgical office, it also embeds the view of female moral, intellectual, physical, spiritual inferiority and deficiency into Christian theology and ecclesiology. And that impacts not only those women who were denied or might otherwise have been drawn to various forms of ministry that were now reserved exclusively for men, but it's actually a view that impacts all women because it says something about all women. Now, the second uh, move, I think, that happens in Christendom as far as gender relationships are concerned is um, concerns the reformers' understanding of the relationship between family, church and state um, as they renegotiated, if you like, the relationship between sexuality and holiness in reaction to the Catholic Church. And there was quite a reaction against the need for a celibate priesthood. Um, and among Reformation priests, marriage was not now just seen as an option for priests, but it was considered normal, the normal way of life that you would marry. And with it, this brought back an emphasis to the patriarch-led family and the necessary rule of men over women. And as far as women were concerned, marriage and motherhood became their only legitimate vocation. So many of the opportunities that existed for women in terms of leadership and ways of life in the alternative religious environments of the convents were shut down. And, and women really didn't have an op option but to, to get married um, in order to survive. So we're back to male rule and female subordination as a social order given by God and keeping to it was considered necessary for the well-being of Christendom. Uh, for the well-being of the empire. And the third dynamic I, I um, point out uh, again, and it often comes back to this, but it's about church regulation of sex and sexuality. Because the Christian understanding of this was one in which women were more associated than men were with humanity's sexual nature and seen as more culpable than men were for humanity's sexual failings. So women are the problem and they get the blame, which sounds like quite a modern uh, theme if you think about it. Uh, but women's sexuality therefore needs to be controlled and it means that women must be separated from the holy. And in the modern era, so I mean historically the modern period of the last two, three hundred years, this has manifested uh, into the idea of the vulnerability or the weakness of women 
who need to be kept within the confines of domesticity and protected from the more aggressive public world. But these are all legacies of Christendom with which the church continues to wrestle. So clearly our theology has been impacted hugely by all of these different happenings and um, connected to lots of different themes that, that you've mentioned here. Um, what are the main sort of theological uh, implications, do you think, that we still sort of grapple with today in church? Well, I think, um, again, focusing on, on the relationship between women and men, um, there are there are other things that that can be talked about, uh, but but if we keep the focus on gender, well, in our theology we have ended up associating maleness with divinity, while at the same time disassociating femaleness with divinity, and that has an effect on the relationship between women and men, because if men stand in a different relationship to God than women do then there is a difference in the social standing women and men have with each other. So we end up with a God-man-woman hierarchy. Um, if I can unpack that a little bit, that's my kind of headline um, of, of really what, what's been going on, uh, where we've ended up. I mean, theology is about how we make sense of and grasp the transcendent reality of God involved in the world and in our lives. You know, we're creatures trying to come to understand and relate to our creator. And our theology, it comes out of a conversation we have with wrestling with biblical texts, uh, with our experience of Christian communities, both past and in our history, and between our experiences of faith that, that we have today. And in speaking of God, we begin from what we know and from where we are. And we can't help this. It's not wrong to do this. We can't step outside of ourselves. We can't be uh, beings who aren't embodied, who exist outside of time and space. We exist in a context. We exist in a culture. That, that's okay. But the dominance of men and a male-centered approach to theology has uh, has meant that women have been excluded from much of our theology with the representative human figure being male. So in practice, despite our foundational Christian notion that humanity, male and female, are made in the image of God, what do we do? The chief way we picture God is male. God is overwhelmingly he. When she may be used or female imagery, it's occasional which only serves to underline that it's the exception, not the rule. And to be honest, for many, God or she feels wrong, even dangerously wrong. It's a visceral response um, that arises. But then what's going on, you know, when we ignore female persons in our imaging of God? Because even when we make statements that God is not male, in our dominance of male imagery for the divine, we are actually associating maleness with God. And it's not an accident as if it's just um, a habit we've fallen into. It does come from a theology that sees femaleness as an impediment to holiness. And it's a legacy of this male-dominated thinking that we find in both patriarchy and Christendom. And it's an inheritance of an ancient way of thinking that divides the world into pairs of opposites. So we have strong and weak rational, emotional, mind, body, divine, human, male, female, these pairs, crucially associating maleness with strength, rationality, with the mind, divinity, and femaleness with weakness, emotionality, and the body, uh, particularly sexuality, and with humanity, not the divine, okay? Okay. Um, I could perhaps, if, if we have time, just to comment a little bit where the figure of Jesus comes into this, because uh, Jesus was male, and certainly this has come into recent debates about the suitability or not of women in leadership roles, particularly notions of priesthood, and sometimes you actually come across debates about whether or not Jesus could have been a woman and so on. Um, I look at this in the book, but as I argue in the book, I don't think these are the heart of the matter. The question that actually impacts our lives about all this is whether or not there is anything about women and femaleness that means it is not suitable to image the divine. 
Because if we say, think, feel or act, despite perhaps what we say we believe, as if femaleness is incompatible with divine incarnation, as if the metaphor image of God means something different for women than it does for men, then we do not have equal personhood. We don't even have equal creaturehood, to be quite honest, between women and men. And and why does this matter as apart from being an intellectual theological argument? Well, one of the ways we can see how this matters is because when you combine the idea that suffering is essential for salvation or is bound up in salvation from ideas of uh, substitutionary or penal atonement or, or versions of these about the place of the cross in our salvation, and you combine that with patriarchal social organization of agenda hierarchy, then women are encouraged to see their suffering from male abuse and violence as part of their particular costs and offer no resistance um, or call for justice. And we have had centuries of this. We've ended up with Christ's servanthood being gendered, with men emulating a suffering servant, uh, sorry, with men emulating a a servant leadership and women um, being assigned the role of of a suffering servant. Um, so the gospel has become gendered. Uh, so that's why I think our theology, it matters. So we find ourselves in this place, but you do offer some hope as to how we might see some kind of change um, in actually coming together um, as women and men serving as disciples of Jesus today. And you speak about the concept of shalom. You speak about hermeneutics of friendship. How would you explore these concepts and how could they help us move forward? Um, We have been bequeathed centuries of perceiving women and men as different and unequal. The most popular way we have of talking about each other as women and men is in terms of the opposite sex, which frequently imagines women and men as adversaries. Uh, Daphne Hampson once talked about um, uh, women and men in terms of neighbouring sex, which, when you think about it, immediately has the power to change the conversation into something a little bit different, away from the language of antagonism to goodwill. so I'm, I'm, I suggest a similar device that that of women and of uh, women and men as friends. Um, but I mean this really not so much as an individual thing, uh, but as a framework or a Christian ethical stance for thinking about humanity as female and male. Uh, it's really important at this point to say what this is not about. Um, it, it's not about being friendly. Uh, given that girls are often socialized into being nice being friendly, cooperative, not standing up for themselves. The idea of friendship could be misused uh, to not respect appropriate social and physical boundaries that are important to keep. You know, if a man says to a woman, oh, I was only being friendly, that's not very friendly of you. You know, there's a kind of social pressure uh, if if girls are socialised to be nice, all right? So um, the notion of women and men as friends is not about being nice. And it's certainly not about women being made to be nice. And I, I really hope that that is heard. But I'm, I'm thinking of it as an analogy to see ourselves jointly and equally caught up as co-workers in God's human project. We are women and men together, side by side, relating as equals and not males above females. And of course, the idea of women and men as friends has biblical resonance. I have called you friends, Jesus says. Um, And Jesus's friends are united through a common friendship with him. Um, The disciples are to love one another as they are friends of one another. Um, But again, we must be careful not to read our idea of friendship back into the ancient world because there's no simple parallel with our own understanding and habits. Because while there was a mutual friendship among equals in the ancient world, that tended to be only between aristocratic elites who were wealthy and free, had political status, and of course, that meant only between men. And friendship often existed uh, where there were differences in power relationships. So it could be between a husband and a wife, parent and children, between a king and uh, their subjects. Um, so it, it was a political, uh, public device Uh, encompassing relationships of duty, obligation, and claims. 
Um, and it, it has parallels with the patronage system. So the friendship Jesus offers the disciples in that sense is not that between of equals, but it is a personal relationship of love that is contrasted with the relationship between slave and master. I don't call you slaves, says Jesus, I have called you friends. And if women and men are friends of God, they can be friends with one another. And again, you see, the remarkable thing about this friendship in the Gospels is that it, it's offered to people who would not have been considered appropriate recipients, uh, recipients of friendship in the ancient world. So when um, Jesus is accused of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners, that was not a compliment. <laughs> it was part of the attempts to discredit him that he would have friendships with the undeserving and the unworthy. So his friendship is a radical intervention into the social and political um, ways of doing things in his day. And I'm suggesting, I think, that envisaging women and men as friends today could have that um, public ramification, that, that um, in the same way that the gospel is not only of individual relevance, but has political and social ramifications, that gender relations of friendship could become part of our public witness, part of how we live the good news. And I think it's useful because it offers us a qualitatively different approach to a Christendom mindset of power control from which we're still working to break free. That's a really good place to stop, I think, and something to continue to explore in our uh, in our own thinking as we perhaps explore with friendship groups in our teams as we come away from this podcast. But thank you so much, Fran uh, Porter, for coming on the podcast. And we do want to recommend you to get her book, Women and Men After Christendom, The Disordering of Gender Relationships. And you can get them uh, get that on uh, your normal online retailers. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Emma. Wow. Well, hopefully you're still with us. Um, and hopefully you've really just enjoyed, or I don't know what the correct word to uh, use would be there. Hope you really enjoyed, hope you're really challenged or provoked in your thoughts um, or angry or I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll come to you first, I think, Emma. Like, how, how was that for you to be in that uh, conversation and um, yeah, hear those things from Dr. Fran Porter? Yeah, I mean, she's so knowledgeable and I think a lot of the things that she said and that she writes about in, in her book are things that I've kind of instinctively felt, um, you know, how Christendom is so impacting the way that we are living, understanding, doing church today. Mm. But it was so helpful just to receive a framework for that instinctual feeling of like something's not right here and I understand that it's not right and I can put some labels on it but I don't understand the root causes kind of thing and I think she really helps us to understand the roots and the strongholds essentially mm. in our in our thinking and in our systems in our yeah in our traditions um so I think it's um it's a really helpful platform to begin exploring the, the problems that we see today from, you know, using history in order to understand and unravel the, the here and the now in order that we might hopefully make a difference for the future. Yeah. Mm. What did you reflect on? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I think that it was... Um... I think there's similarities in, in what you're saying, just kind of like looking at the strongholds and really re understanding how much uh, the the era of Christendom has shaped not just the church, but society as a whole and culture. Uh, I, I was reflecting a lot on, and this is probably, you and I have just finished a um, theology course together, um, and my final assignment was on the threefold order of ministry of bishops, priests and deacons, which is what Dr. Fran Porter was talking about. Uh, and she also um, compared it a little bit to the fivefold um, found in Ephesians 4 um, through kind of like leading through giftings rather than function. 
Um, so I was reflecting on that. Uh, I'd not really thought about it, I, I guess, from a, a gender perspective before either. Um, and I just found it so interesting about the conversation around celibacy, that how the priesthood um, became something for men, and they qualified for that by uh, going through kind of like the discipline of celibacy, which entitled them to be uh, priests through obtaining holiness effectively. Um, and then was just completely struck when she just kind of made it so clear that even purity through celibacy, when that was the way of thinking, wasn't enough for a woman. So kind of like yeah. the church has implanted this innateness that women are unholy mm. and that men can achieve this level of holiness that's required to serve God that women could not mm. achieve. Um, it's quite striking, isn't it, when you think about it? Unbelievably striking, yeah. And mm. and I mean, alongside that as well, uh, on the threefold and the fivefold, just kind of uh, being reminded of how perhaps a lot of our leadership structures that we see in our churches and our context, and maybe it's the same for you guys listening, um, but just how they're more often than not, in my experience at least, based on role, office and function. That's how you get into leadership through obtaining and sitting in a specific role that's predecided by the church. Mm. Um, and Fran again was comparing that to the early Christians um, who were kind of equipped and found their calling through their giftings, mm. through the Spirit, and how that led to uh, their ministry. So it was kind of like flipping the missiology and the ecclesiology. Mm. So how today we live in probably a society where the church dictates the mission rather than letting your mission be shaped by Jesus which will then shape how the church looks mm. um, and how, how different that should uh, and could look if we kind of got back to leading through giftings um, as opposed to office and function mm. Mm. yeah it's uh, connecting obviously to some of the other podcasts that we've done on APEST and how yeah. if we do understand APEST then that should also free us up to think more inclusively in terms of gender and and other sort of diversity as well mm. yeah it's interesting yeah and I think um, I think as well the word that you used was really good um, in your summary just at the start of this reflection just in terms of stronghold mm. just recognizing that that's something that usually has power that's not easy to overcome mm. uh, and just recognizing that um, I mean maybe even generationally that this is something where uh, like it's it's difficult we're in we're in the era of like this huge wave of which has come too late but this huge wave of um bringing about equality not just amongst men and women but amongst people groups mm. and and uh everything there but there's still just these strongholds that are often dictated by church that are just kind of like really hard to break through mm. uh i mean yeah. if i can ask you a question i mean how ra rather than reflecting on what Fran said, I mean, if you go into your um, emotional reflection over this conversation, how, how does it how does it make you feel, this whole conversation, as a woman in leadership in a church that's, yeah, you yeah. Know, or, a, or a background that's maybe not uh, been completely open to, yeah the, yeah, the balanced way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, it makes me a little bit exhausted <laughs> to think about, like, in, in some ways, I've gone into exploring this this area, um, this topic, if you like, from a, from a perspective of wanting to be creative and wanting to, you know, see change in a positive way. And you can't kind of skip the step of sort of lamenting hmm. where we're at, I think. And I think that becomes clear to me when I listen to Fran. And actually, one of the most impacting things that she said she said off air as we were just talking about, you know, what what other things that I see, what are the things that she sees, and she said to me, you know, the the difficulty is that she can recognise the same struggles that I'm having in my generation. She recognises mm. she has been having in her generation. So yeah. even though we do see some small changes all of the time, and there's waves, and there's you know different phases of, of stuff there's ultimately you know we're we're fighting the same battles yeah. and I guess that is quite disheartening to me mm. how long are we gonna be fighting these giants you know mm. and who's going to be fighting with us because I think that's one of the 
things that I see in my in my work in anti-trafficking as well that it's it often is branded or understood as a woman's issue Hmm. even though uh, women who are exploited are exploited by men and I think you can draw a comparison to this here you know that um women in leadership becomes an issue for women to resolve but actually you know we've got to have both women and men resolving this issue together and I don't think that's the sort of go-to way of thinking and I think that Mm. significantly needs to change if we're going to be not dealing with this issues um Mm. several generations to come yeah yeah I mean I'm just by what you're saying there I think it's really important and um uh, she spoke about it a little bit at the end about the hermeneutics of friendship and what that can look like I'm just reminded now as you're talking um uh, it's a different issue but still uh, around equality but during the um height of the Black Lives Matter movement there was this kind of realization among society that it's no longer enough to be anti-racist mm. it's now that you have to be actively pro-equality yeah um, and that's the kind of stage maybe that you're talking about that we need to get to and and me and uh, other men that are listening like it's not enough to just kind of stand by and say yeah go for it support this but mm. but to kind of research and figure out how do we get to a place of standing side by side of, yeah. of women and bringing about this um, uh, balance and I mean it's not just a balance that we're trying to invent it's a balance that was there in the early churches mm. like she was talking about with the apostles and struck again by how she mentioned that Saul of Tarsus was uh, taking both men and women to prison so yeah. so women were in the movement in leadership and apostolic roles um, and that's obviously been silenced yeah. um, so so as men how do we stand shoulder to shoulder as well yeah um, yeah we need to find a new a new way of working together and recognizing that the issue that we're dealing with when it comes to equality is an issue that affects the whole church and it needs to be framed in that way and if we're going to be seeing movement you know if we if we're talking about movement then it's a it's a movement issue it's not a problem for women it's an Mm. issue of movement if we want to see movement in the church Mm. then we've got to remove this obstacle which is in our way yeah uh and yeah i mean i want to be hopeful but yeah yeah, we've got to reframe reframe the questions, reframe the relational dynamics around how we're grappling with the questions. Mm. And yeah, perhaps she's given us a little bit of a seed um, to explore further in terms of her suggested hermeneutics. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was I was interested by that, and before we come to an end, I was just gonna gonna ask because she does touch on that, um, and it sounds really in like interesting, and I'd I'd love to know more. But I mean. It, is there more like practical application of how you bring about that kind of friendship that she was talking about? Mm. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's something that I'm certainly going to be looking to explore. I think we might have to do a separate podcast on that one, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. So we'll just entice the listeners yeah. well, in saying, you... let's, let's see if there's an interest in us exploring that further. Mm. Yeah, good idea. Could you give us the title of the book one more time? Um, yeah, it's uh, Women and Men After Christendom. The Disordering of Gender Relationships. And uh, yeah, I'd really recommend you to get the book. She obviously unpacks some of the things that she talks about in the podcast in more detail. And it's quite um, an accessible book in a sense. It's not overly academic. It's quite accessible for, for anyone to read. So so do please go out and get that mm. uh, wherever you buy books online. Great. Well, uh, in bringing our podcast to a close, we'll do what we usually do, which is to just give a few suggested questions. Um, if you're listening uh, with other people, uh, leadership teams or friendship groups or whatever it may be, or on your own, um, just some things to reflect over and then you can engage with us as well on our um, social media platforms, Venture 12 Podcast. Um, but Emma, what, what questions are we putting out there today? We've got three discussion questions for you or reflective questions. And the first one is, do you call God she? And Mm. if you don't, why not? Mm. The second question is, how is Christendom impacting you, your church and your leadership? And thirdly, 
What's your local leadership structure and is it enabling equality in leadership? Challenging questions there. Yeah, it'll take us a while to to grapple with those ourselves as well. So if anybody wants to keep the dialogue going, use, use the spaces provided and we'll be happy to continue the conversation with you absolutely well uh, that's all from us today um thanks for listening uh we pray that it will just be um an interview and a podcast that will just uh, there'll be things that just stand out and strike you uh, whether it's right now or in the coming hours days or weeks um just that it won't be something that remains in our heads and our understanding but will move to our hearts which will affect our actions and the way that the world looks uh, take care and god bless <laughs>